A Canadian of Irish, Scottish, and Métis roots, Joseph Boyden is the award-winning author of Three Day Road, which won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, and the McNally Robinson Aboriginal Book of the Year Award, and Through Black Spruce, which won the 2008 Scotiabank Dealer Prize. He divides his time between Northern Ontario and Louisiana, where he teaches writing at the University of New Orleans. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Again, How are you? It's good to be back. And it's good to read your most recent contribution to this extraordinary Canadian series. I want to ask you if the fact that you've got maybe blood running through your veins had anything to do with how you look on these two characters. I should mention the title is Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont. I think certainly makes you blood and gives your boy blood. You can't escape it. There's no reason why I'd want to, but certainly I'm going to look at these two men with a little bit more possibly of empathetic eye or sympathetic eye than, than some others might, some of the drier academics who are really after certain theses or points. I went into this with a very open mind, though, this book. I didn't come in saying I love Louis Riel and I love Gabriel Dumont, because I necessarily didn't. I, I really thought Gabriel Dumont was a fascinating guy, and that's why I wanted him. I give him 50% of the page time. As I did more and more research, and as I read more and more, my empathy for these men really grew, especially Louis. I think he's so misunderstood. I felt you read the transcripts of his trial and just how he so desperately wanted the jury and the people listening to understand where he was coming from, what he had wanted to do. You know, he even spoke English in the trial, although it wasn't his strong suit necessarily, and so you know, he stumbled with his words and he, uh, he desperately wanted to show people that what he was doing wasn't the work of a madman, it was the simple human rights that he was after. The terrible irony is that they were simply asking for what Baldwin and uh, Lafontaine mm -hmm. had been asking for mm -hmm. from Britain about 30, 40 years prior. For sure. And it's very similar in those ways, this idea of uh, human rights dignity for Métis culture. And it was not just the Métis that Rio was fighting for. He, he put together a list of ten demands, might be too strong a word, but this is what they asked of the federal government. It wasn't just the Métis that put this together. He included the white settlers. Uh, he included the Indian. It was a group effort. It was a multicultural effort. And they knew what was coming. It was the railroad. They knew it was coming very quickly. And they knew that what followed the railroad was the government giving out land, giving away land that these people have been living on for decades. So it was very simple demands. There was nothing mad about that aspect at all. Very uh, straightforward and, and reasonable. Incredibly reasonable. Perhaps we could get just to that then. First of all, he was intelligent. He was university. He was the first Métis from Red River to go to university, university educated. Yeah. And as a result, he was able to, as you say, put together a coalition including the clergy. At first, yeah. At the, in the first, that first rebellion yeah. in... In 1870, for sure. 1870. And even he, and the clergy behind him, when he came back, when Dumont rode down to get him uh, in 1884, the clergy was behind him as well. They, he won them over with his speeches and his uh, mod moderate stand and his clear passion for the people in the land. Eventually, he ended up months later, a year later, excommunicating him. <laughs> so something changed, you know, something yeah. desperate changed. What did change? Riel, uh, the pressure, I think, he, he went up not sure he wanted to stay. He said, I'll stay for the autumn. I want to be back by the autumn. Uh, Dumont came down to Montana. They had never met before. There was possibly they had met once in 1869, but uh, there's no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Riel didn't recognize 
Dumont, Dumont shut up at his door. Dumont went down to try to get Riel to help out. You know, he knew that Riel was successful in 1870. Which, uh, if we can get to that, 1870 was the basis of the founding of Manitoba. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, what's so funny is it's always been called a rebellion in 1870. Manitoba wasn't even part of Canada, so what are they rebelling from? And I always find that interesting. It's how you view the history is, uh, you know, to the victor go to spoils. But uh, it wasn't a rebellion at all. It was, it was a defense of the homeland and demands that Métis and settler land not be taken away from the Métis and settlers when, when Manitoba became part of the Council of the Union. And so, yeah, there was that first one. You know, people are often confused by this whole time in history, but it's really straightforward. There was two, two uprisings, one in 1870, and which ended rather peacefully, except for the execution of Thomas Scott. Which was ordered by uh, Louis Riel, which came back to haunt him, right? It certainly came back to haunt him, and it was actually ordered by the uh, the committee, so it wasn't just Riel's doing. Riel could have stopped it, though, so I'm not saying that he didn't, wasn't involved, and he certainly was, but Thomas Scott was an orangeman and uh, a viral kind of racist. Do we know that for sure, or is yeah. that your take on it? Uh, well, that's what uh, uh, all the books say. The jailers who were ordered to watch uh, Thomas Scott went to the committee and said, you've got to do something with this guy, because if you don't, we're going to end up killing him. He's just uh, this is viral kind of nut who's just screaming. He was pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, so there's lots of evidence that, that says that, yes, he was uh, vehement in, in, his, in his hatred of the Indians. Not a reason necessarily to execute a man, but... Uh, it uh, certainly did come back to haunt Riel. People say that Riel was hanged for, the, for what he did to Thomas Scott. You know, yeah, you make mention of the fact mm-hmm. that the, the, the executioner the knew the guy. The executioner was like a friend of Thomas Ava. Scott and somehow got the job of putting the rope around Riel's neck and then the last word that Riel gets to hear is basically, this, this is payback time, buddy. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here to take your life. Amazingly callous. That's something I learned that, that I didn't know about before that really shocked me. But uh, basically, Riel came back up in 1884 at the behest of a number of Métis. We could just finish off with 1870. Mm-hmm. There was a, a petition that went to the federal government. They cobbled together an agreement that Manitoba would then come into confederation. Yeah, the Riel basically outmaneuvered the federal government, outplayed, if you think of it as a chess game, he totally got the federal government to a corner where basically the government had to agree that they were going to give the Métis land and that. But what ended up happening is once the deal was signed and Manitoba came into the union, the Métis did not get the land that they had been promised. Which is an ongoing theme, isn't Oh, it? absolutely. It's so happening right now in uh, modern court, in contemporary courts uh, in Manitoba. There's, there's battles going on about... Uh, Broken promise. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Riel was forced to flee Red River in 1870. Once Manitoba became part of the Confederation, there was a general sent with a number of troops supposedly to uh, keep order, but uh, the people in the know knew that they were coming to wreak havoc on Riel and, and a lot of the Métis. So they came and Riel ran. He was forced to flee into the States. So then he lived there and he, he was He lived there for about 14 years. He was teaching on Indian reservation, uh, teaching Indian children uh, how to read and write. Felt very unfulfilled. And I think, you know, this time in the wilderness, I call it, the, the 14 years he spent, were pretty dark times, I think, very tough times for him. And then he bounced between jobs. He went to Washington and met the president at one point, supposedly, although there's no record of his actual meeting with the president. That's what everyone at the time said. So, you know, he wanted to get back into Canada. Was that Grant? Yes, yeah. this is Grant. So he spent these 14 years, many of which the Canadian government didn't, didn't uh, 
response to having executed Scott said you have to stay out of Canada for five years. And so that was part of the reason he stayed out of Canada. But he also ended up coming back into Canada and snuck back in uh, and put into a couple of asylums in Quebec, jumping all over the place. But his history of those years was quite troubled, but quite fascinating. He also felt that money, money's mm-hmm. $35,000. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald he promised to give him money so he could look after his family, because he was the oldest in the family. He was one of 11 children, so he could take care of proper care of his family. This was supposedly one of the promises of Riel's banishment from Canada. If you stay out, you'll get this certain amount of money. So it was all kind of dirty work, you know, behind the scenes stuff, and then uh, Johnny McDonald didn't give him the money. 35000 is the number that he came, Riel came up with later. Because he, he, he held that close? Very much so, yeah. yeah cause he, for most of his... Wasn't he saying that at the very end? At the very end, he said the government owes me money. One one of the theories is when he was back in 1884, he wanted the money to start a printing press because he understood the power of the written word, the power of, of the newspaper to get uh, people together to bring them together. So Gabriel Dumont was a, a leader. Yeah, he's a captain of the Buffalo, well, one of the great captains of the Buffalo, but the Buffalo at this point. In current day Saskatchewan, right? Yes. And then he decided to go down to, to get... To get Riel. ...back yeah. so that they could, what, negotiate? Yeah, uh, to help them right? negotiate because Riel was, he was educated, he had succeeded in Manitoba, they needed help putting together a list of rights. They had been petitioning Johnny McDonald for well over a decade with no response. Uh, yeah, that was McDonald's modus operandi. It really was, yeah, that's how we operated with the Métis, just he didn't, didn't answer the phone kind of thing. Yeah, he doesn't come across that well. No, and then, well, because I look at all of his actions, and it would have been very simple. This, the Northwest, we're talking about millions upon millions of acres, and the Métis and the settlers were not asking for millions and millions of acres. They're asking for very reasonable their farm lots to be given to them. They want a title to the farms that they that they lived on. It's not a lot to ask. Why do you think he ignored them? Just because it would set a precedent? or He didn't want to give anything. I think his, his disdain, his hatred for Riel was very deep. And, uh, because of what? The fact that he'd... Riel had gotten the best of him in some ways in 1869 and 1870. And um, the fact that he killed killed somebody, but I don't think that was that big a deal. I don't think that was too shocking to Johnny McDonald's. Uh, it was more his pride? That was I think it was pride. It was a big part of it. And if you give them to the Métis, he's got to give them to the settlers, he's got to give them to the Indians. He desperately wanted this railroad to be finished. But to give him credit, I mean, putting it together was, was also an answer to the expansion of the U.S. Absolutely, to the U.S. idea of manifest destiny. So this would have you know, made sense, of course, but his inability to deal with the Métis was, was kind of shocking. And yet, it doesn't get that much play. One of the reasons that this series uh, has been put together, would you say, is to give a non-Victorian, non-British perspective? Absolutely, give a different perspective, an artist's perspective or a novelist's perspective rather than a historian's. Mm. We've all had to become amateur historians, obviously, in some way or another, but yeah, John Nelson Saul asked me for a reason to, to do Riel and Dumont. Because of your, your background? My background and my... Uh, skill as a writer. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> <laughs> you could look. <laughs> yeah, my, my charming, my charming good looks. What meaning then do you take from these two men's lives? I think that's one of the things that in the introduction, one of the introductions to the series, Ralston Saul talks about the fact that he'd like Canadians to learn about these lives so that they can, what, get different perspectives, learn more about themselves, take meaning from what these impressive Canadians did. What, what meaning does, does it have for you? Well, I think because of Riel and Dumont's actions, 
there are hundreds of thousands of Métis in Canada today who are able to identify with, with where they come from. I think that if Riel and Dumont Northwest insurrection hadn't have happened, the Métis would have been scattered to the wind and it would have been a very different situation contemporarily for the Métis people in Canada. But how much further ahead are they now than they were? Well, it's an ongoing battle, that's for sure, you know, with hunting rights, fishing rights, land rights, all of this is being questioned in the courts. But the great thing is there's a group for a group. You know, there's different Métis nations across the provinces and then federally, you know, respectable size and with population that size comes a little bit of ability to... Uh, clout. Yeah, clout, absolutely. And also, uh, I mean, this is going to be uh, a popular seller, one hopes. I hope so. No, no disrespect to academics, but none of them write very dryly. Tension and passion um, of the period isn't necessarily there, and I hope in my own little way to bring back the kind of amazing vitality of the time. Well, it, it is a great story, and you tell it very well, I should uh, no, thank say. You. But you do definitely have a perspective. You don't like, I don't know how other historians have treated Scott, <laughs> but, but you don't like him one bit. No, not from what I read when the reasons. Again, though, was, it was that too strict a, uh, a punishment to meet out, I think so, yeah. To kill him? Yeah, to yeah. execute him for... Real was sending, and the committee was sending a message that, Ken, we're being serious here. Yes. You're not taking us seriously. I have qualms with that. There's no question about this is a man's life we're talking about. But he's been captured once already, Thomas Scott, and put into prison. Yeah. Uh, he escaped. Unlike all of the others who are a little bit more sane, who refused to give up, he refused to uh, accept that the Métis were running the show. But isn't that the ongoing concern of Native groups? Is these bastards aren't taking... Absolutely. Uh, seriously. Yeah. So what the hell do we have to do to yeah. make them pay attention? Yeah, what's left, yeah. And this happened, you know, it's the Frog Lake Massacre, they call it. The number of young Indians killed a number of white settlers right during the 1885 uprising. Yeah, it certainly happened. It happens all across history, not just in Canada. What do you want the readers to, c to come away with? Riel was really kind of the first multiculturalist that in, in so many ways. He was so inclusive of all cultures. He was saying all the European nations can, there's room for everyone in the Northwest, not just the Métis and Indians, there's room for everyone. And people don't know that about him. It wasn't just Métis, right? It was no, it was, it was... It was a very Canadian sort it of was thing, a very, wasn't it? It was, I think it's, a, it's extremely Canadian. And, you know, the other thing, too, is I'm a big fan of good story. I hope to have brought back the good story of this, and I hope to, you know, Dumont is almost like a black and white photograph that's left out in the sun and he's fading and fading from our memory, and that would be a shame, because he's such an amazing, kind of the last hero of the old Canadian West. Well, and he even, uh, he was in with Wild Bill. Yeah, he ended up joining Buffalo Bill's Wild West show while he was in exile. Because he was a skilled writer. Incredibly skilled writer and shot. He was a real sniper, a real marksman. And he was a, yeah, real interesting character. I wonder the takeaway message is that progress in whatever form it takes should never be allowed to trample the rights of the community of the broader culture. And progress, I assume by that that you mean, in that case, the railway. In the case of, yeah, rail, the development is the railroad going across Canada and the development of the West uh, becoming the breadbasket of Canada and the world. Nowadays, look at the oil sands and, and First Nations suffering um, because of it, you know, but I'm seeing a lot of similarities now. I think some things haven't changed for First Nations and Métis. 
you know, there's a lot of First Nations people sick because of the contamination. There's always reflections, I think, between the past and the, and the present. Do you feel uh, grateful or empowered by having been invited into this? Oh, absolutely. I think it was a, a really it was a yeah. wonderful thing to be invited into. I'm, I'm really grateful I'm done with the book. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be honest, it was a very tough book to write because of the sheer volume of research and, and how do I tell this story in a fresh way. And I realized very quickly, well, wait a second. These guys only knew each other last year and a half. I can cover a year and a half of these men's lives in, the, in communal life. And, and, and they allotted amount of time, about 45,000 words, this, this book, my typical books, my novels are three times that. So the, the pressure was on? The pressure was on, and I missed deadlines. You can ask Diane Turbine at Penguins, but I knew I was going to get it done, and I was just sort of tough to write. One of the things that comes out in the book is the fact that Louis often would serve as a break on Dumont. Dumont wanted to use force, yeah. and Louis was not going there, yeah. even though he was responsible for the death of Scott. Dumont, he saw the, the writing on the wall. Riel was hoping that no violence would happen. That MacDonald would, would capitulate and, yeah. and be forced to listen to the Métis and the settlers and the Indians. But Dumont saw the writing on the wall. He knew that it was going to happen. Then there was the conflict, the first conflict, where the Métis were fired upon first. An old Indian man was uh, killed by uh, a Northwest Mounted Police. And, and that started the first uh, battle in Duckley. Is that the 93-year-old? Yes, the old yeah. man who just wandered up just and said, what's going on? And he was shot inexplicably. So the first shot of anger was fired by the Northwest Mounted Police, not the Mercy. And after that happened, Dumont knew all hell's going to break loose. The only chance we have, severely under-equipped, he knew that the only chance they had was guerrilla tactics. And I believe, having gone to Batash and seeing where Dumont surprised Middleton, General Middleton's much bigger force, and defeated them soundly uh, in the first real battle, pitched battle. Actually, the second, I should say first. I knew that he could have done it. He could have held off the Canadian forces, who were totally green, who had no experience. Some of them had never been out of the city before. They were ill-equipped for the winter. If Dumont could have pushed them to the winter, through the summer and into the autumn, the winter would have taken care of the Canadian army, and they would have, McDonald would have been forced to deal with them. But I'm pretty sure that Dumont could have held them off and uh, forced their them to the table that way. But Riel was sort of like, no more, no more killing, no more violence. Uh, you can't really expect to have a revolution, <laughs> an uprising without it, unfortunately. So, and Dumont didn't trust his gut. He, al- he was a man who always trusted his gut. That comes out quite frequently. Is it? Yeah, like but he listened to Riel and he... Not his gut. Yeah. It could be quite a different it story. It would have been a very different story, I think. Yeah. Just in closing, perhaps I could get you to talk a bit about the design of, of the cover. Yeah, I love it. It's just a First Nations artist, and the artist, Jane Ash Poitras, who's just fantastic. And if you notice all of the Cernic Canadians, they're all different covers, but many of them are paintings. And this is the one, this is a kind of a, a mixed media photographs, old photographs of the time, a picture of Riel, a picture of Dumont beside his uh, horse, his petite, his, his rifle. Uh, picture of Riel in the trial and some syllabics around the sides and the Métis sash. I love it. I, I was really taken by it. And it's different from the others, which mm-hmm. I, I kind of like in a way. It, it stands out in a different way from the others, just like the Métis do, you know? I think that was part of the thinking behind it. Is we're similar in some ways, but different in many others. It is evocative of that 
that whole period, you do connect it with these interesting old yellowed photographs. Mm -hmm. and so it's a book I'm uh, quietly proud of doing, even though it would prove to be such an enormous pain to, <laughs> to birth this one. <laughs> It, it took away from your other, uh, your other. It did for yeah, and it, you know that's. I knew I knew that that was going to happen. I thought it was going to be more of a one-year ordeal, and it turned out stretching over three years with the research and the, and the writing. So now I'm just I'm starting a new novel, and I'm happily back at <laughs> telling lies again to tell a bigger truth. So. so you didn't tell any lies in this then? Not that I know of. No, I think I, I, I had to be as careful and as accurate as possible. And you know, I, I used a lot of pretty wonderful writers as my. Yeah, for a lot of my research, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, you speak glowingly of uh, George Woodcock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a great, that's the one great biography of Dumont uh, Gibbs, a fantastic biography. Really exciting. It's one of those biographies that bring him to life, I think, in a wonderful way. Anything you want to leave listeners with? There's nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to Riel and Dumont. There's nothing earth-shattering new material that I'm presenting, but I think... I hope that I've told the, their story in, a, in an honest and, and kind of exciting way, because this time period in Canadian history really is full of drama. And I hope that comes through in the book, and I hope readers rediscover Riel, and especially many people for the first time discovering Gabriel Dumont, a man that many people don't know much about. So I hope readers pick it up and enjoy it. It's a quick read, I think. Yeah, it's a page turn. I hope so. I hope so. I appreciate you saying that. Thanks again for yeah, your time. Pleasure. Good yeah. to see you again. Good to see you again, too. Joseph Gordon is the award-winning author of Three Day Road and Three Blacks. Bruce, which won the 2008 Scotiabank Giller Prize.